Each of us has a unique part to play. You can't get happy if you deny suffering in the universe. I'll tell you a simple law, because the juice you have to put into denying it cuts off the full flow. If you, as long as you've got to turn something off, there's a cost. And the question is, can you look at suffering full in the face, open your heart to it, and still exist and be joyful? That's the art form. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. This is number 217, Celebrating Spirit Through Service. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, your host, and you, you are the Ramdas community. In this lecture from 1985 in San Rafael, California, Ramdas talks about the many ways he has used service as a way of waking up and becoming free. He talks about uh, duty as well, this idea of purpose, um, in contrast to seva or service. And when thinking about purpose, I think many of us struggle with this idea about what is mine to do? What is my purpose in the world? I know for me, it was about 20 years ago when I was living in an ashram and chewing on this question. And a mentor of mine at the time, when I asked her, she told me that my duty was to do whatever was in front of me. Of course, I thought she was crazy or unmotivated or somehow manipulating me in some way. I, of course, was going to have some lightning bolt moment where the big purpose of my life would suddenly be revealed and then all would be right in the world. Well, of course, as you all know, and as Ram Dass talks about in this lecture, she was right. We take on whatever is in front of us and use it to become free. In this lecture, he shares several examples of this. When he moved home to care for his elderly father and how he would catch himself identifying so deeply with his roles and experiences. He talks about taking care of his stepmother and it leading to this understanding of the art of surrender, which is necessary for true freedom. He talks about the work he did with Larry Brilliant and the Seva Foundation taking on blindness in Nepal and deciding that how they did what they did was more important than what they did. That for it to be true service, it has to come with compassion that wells out of emptiness rather than do-gooding. And before we go into the lecture, I just want to remind each of us that even if we are not wiping out smallpox or starting businesses that fund huge initiatives as part of our purpose and service, what we do still matters. We are each one of the arms of the 10,000 armed goddess of compassion. And that might show up as making copies for a local environmental group or taking on um, volunteering at your local soup kitchen or sending money to help end trafficking or simply taking care of children. For as Ramdas says in his book, How Can I Help? We work to end suffering without attachment to whether suffering ends. And speaking of suffering, it's clearly something we all experience and habitually we try to avoid. 
And yet, as he says and others say over and over again, we have to be able to sit with suffering to become free. And as we all know, meditation is one of the great ways to loosen the glue that binds us to our suffering. It's where we get quiet so we can hear, which is another one of our favorite Ramdas quotes, right? The quieter you become, the more you can hear. So if you are seeking that level of deep inner listening, then I invite you to join a new 10-day meditation series with Ramdas and other notable meditation teachers called Pause, Breathe, and Be Here Now. This free event is online and it's hosted by Commune, a video course platform for personal and societal well-being. It's in partnership with Be Here Now Network and the Love Serve Remember Foundation. So you can sign up between January 16th and 25th, and you will receive daily video meditations from Ramdas, along with bonus meditations from Be Here Now Network teachers such as Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, Ramdev, and Joseph Goldstein. So you will go to onecommune.com slash Ramdas. That's spelled out. Uh, O-N-E, commune.com slash Ramdas to register, and you'll join tens of thousands of people around the world for this collective daily meditation experience. I look forward to seeing you there. So as always, whatever good may come from these teachings, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world. We thank each of you for being here as well as the many, many people behind the scenes that help make this possible, including those who help fund us, donations, and sponsors. So enjoy, namaste, and blessings. So I moved home, and I started to take care of my father. Well, it has turned out to be one of the most extraordinary sadhanas or upayas or methods I had ever worked with, because each day... The, on the days I was on duty, I'd get up, wake my father, move him to the bathroom, bathe him, toilet him, get his bridge, brush his bridge, put his pad on, dress him, take him out to the kitchen, shuffling along with the walker, feed him, wipe, feed, sit him down, sit with him. My father and I, in our growing years, were, he was a great achiever. He was doing wonderful, he was a big shaker and mover in society. And we would, he'd pat me on the head and, you know, I was raised by my mother. And he was a nice guy, but stern and remote. He never touched each other much. It wasn't the, wasn't the thing. Now, my goodness, we're cuddling and bathing. When I'm putting on his socks, he's patting me on the back. Imagine that. You know what that feels like? And I might have missed that. I might have missed that because I was so much in the myth that independence means leaving home. I might have missed the whole idea of extended family. Now, what I did was I began to see that uh, this was a good sadhana. So I started to keep a little diary of what was going on. And I noticed that each day was an entirely different me that went to meet my father. I mean, my mind was so fertile. My mind is so slimy, I'll tell you. It, can, it does so much subtle manipulation. Here's just a list of some of the days of what they were like. See, one day I came up and I was kind. You know what that's like? You know, it's kind. 
And you feel kind, you know, you're kind. Uh, who are you? I'm well, just, just kindly. It's a kind feeling, you know. But just the next day, I was long-suffering. See? Jesus, I got to do this every day. And he's... <laughs> then one day, a few days later, there was a lot of filial devotion. That was nice. I mean, I was so enamored of the myth of being a good son. And this was just so juicy. <laughs> then there was a day when it was all automatic. My mind was somewhere else. Then we had the day when I was sharing the joy of a new day. You got to understand, through all this, my father is very stoic. I mean, he's, he's been with me through so much of my shit by now. He's just, <laughs> you know. So half the time, I don't know whether he's my father or my guru in drag. I don't have any idea who he is, you know. <laughs> or a smelly old man, or a, when we're bathing, a fellow male. Um, or sometimes I'm a scientist and I see him as a set of ambulatory variables. Because we keep charts of what goes in and what comes out, since you've got to watch it all. And our conversation around the house is whether it was a tiny, small, medium, or large. Those of you with intestines know what I, of which I am speaking. Some days I was busy respecting him. Some days I was busy guiding him. Some days I was drawing him out. Some days I was distracted. Some days I was very humorous. These were all models I had of who I was in this situation. And I saw that all of these were just other postures that kept me from just being with him. They were my mind cutting me off from the moment. And slowly, I just, they all started to melt and melt and melt. And then there'd be moments when it was just wiping his behind, or it was just soaping his body, and it was just holding hands. And when he'd be walking with his walker, I'd be back of him, and I'd be lift, push, place, lift, push, place. And we'd just be meditating our way to the kitchen very slowly together, just being in a gentle space. And I began to see what a method this was. That if I wanted to use it as work on myself, every day was another little bit of awareness of where my mind was grabbing hold. And each day I could come up for air just by being with him again, and noticing it. Not getting violent with myself, not saying, you jerk, because that's perfect too. If I were all enlightened, I would have in, wouldn't have incarnated. Unless I just did it for you, which I didn't. <laughs> I wish I had, but that's perfect too. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I am talking about as one type of work on oneself. There are many types of work on oneself. That's you are try you are working to become more aware of the mechanics by which your mind grabs hold of realities. That's it. Now
So I ended up in that particular situation seeing that dealing with my father was incredible grace for me. Through all these years, I have kept meditation going and um, as another way of working on myself. And this past summer, I spent two months in Rangoon, Burma, in a Theravadan meditation center with an extraordinary master named uh, Upandita, Sayada Upandita, sitting in meditation from 3 in the morning till 11 at night. Following the rising and falling of the muscle in my abdomen that goes in and up and down with each breath. It's interesting. Uh, it's one of the hardest things I ever did. I mean, I've done that meditation, but I never did it from 3 in the morning till 11 at night for two months. And 10 minutes a day, you see the teacher, and you report to the teacher. The report sounds like this. 6 p.m. last night, I was meditating on the rising and falling of my breath. I was noting the rising as rising. I was noting the falling as falling. The rising had a quality of elasticity. The falling had a quality of settling. After about three minutes, I became aware of the sound of a bird. Then he interrupts and he said, did you hear the bird on a rising or a falling? <laughs> and you say, I didn't notice. And he said, well, please try to do better next time. <laughs> and as you're leaving, he says, by the way, did you go to sleep last night or in a rising or a falling breath? Ah. <laughs> and it's extraordinary. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's a no-nonsense game. And he really sees where your mind is. And, and you're, speaking of slimy mind, I mean, I saw stuff in me. I, would, I was so subtle. Well, at any rate, I was getting very high. I mean, you get really far out. I don't know much more than that. I mean, I'd sit for 10 hours in, in, in uh, tranquility. Nice place. It's a little spiritual materialism, you know, but it's nice. And all of your sunscars sort of lurking out of the edges, all your thoughts just waiting for you to not follow the breath, you know, and then they're just waiting to come around. <laughs> At the end of two months, I got a telegram, which I'd been dreaming and hoping to get for the first month. <laughs> but by the second month, I had settled in and I was pr prepared to go the three months, which I was committed to do. And then at the end of the second month, unwanted now by me, a telegram came saying that my stepmother had cancer and was going to be operated on. And the prognosis was unclear. Now, she was taking care of my father. And if she wasn't going to be around, I should go back and take care of my father. So... That seemed obvious. So I took the telegram to the teacher. Teacher had the telegram translated. He said, don't go. Don't go? He said, you're really working to end suffering and you're, you're doing very high work. You're very far along now, but you have more to do. And if you leave now, you go back with the kinds of, he didn't say all this, but roughly, with the attachments you have, and what suffering will you relieve, you know? You may relieve a little short-term suffering, but in the long run, you're just an, a typhoid Mary. You're just carrying suffering with you, like everybody else. 
and somebody else will take care of them and you stay here. And you know, in Hinduism, when you become a sannyas, a renunciate, they have a funeral ceremony for you and you are burned, you die to your parents and family. But in the Jewish tradition, I mean, I'm a Jewish boy from Boston. You never die to your family. I mean, there was no shiva sat for me. I, uh, see, and I, he said, I don't think you should go. And I looked and I saw those sanskaras. I saw my karma, my family karma. I saw the whole thing. And I said, I hear what you're saying, but I got to go. I mean, it's like, it's poignant, but there it is. And I came home and it was incredible. I mean, it was a far out experience. Suddenly I went from, you know, three in the morning to 11 at night in my meditation cell to an intensive care ward. Hours and days at a time. And it was extraordinary. I mean, it was so beautiful and so clear and so, there was so much love for the doctors and the nurses and it was so, everybody was so liquid and human. I mean, it was just an incredible experience for me. And my stepmother and I became so close. And I began to see that dealing with her cancer was a whole other ball game for me than dealing with the cancer of somebody who I went to help die because this was my stepmother. And there was a new level of attachment here, a new level of attachment. There was one moment when I was, we had decided that we would share everything together. She and I have been doing it. We go to the doctor together. We share all the medicines, everything. We plan it all. I don't take the medicines, but we... We hang in together through the whole process. I'm with her every day and when, I, when she's really needing me. She's getting better now at the moment, so it's fine. And um, so at this particular point, she had had a sarcoma removed from her thigh, and the question was whether it had moved to her liver, which would mean that it was systemic. And they had done a, a biopsy, and they were going to call on this day. She said, you be on the phone with me. And so I was in the bedroom doing some work on the floor and writing and the phone rang and I picked up my phone and she picked up hers and they said, just a minute, doctor's coming. And I looked up at a picture of my guru and I said to my guru, look, I don't ask you for anything because you know how things are and what the hell, I mean, you know how things have to be and what am I asking for? And you must, some of you must know, I did a book called Miracle of Love, which has a thousand stories about how he zapped people and cleaned up their illnesses and all that. So I said, but by the way, if you can slip it through, you know, karmically without any trouble, would you, you know? <laughs> this point, the doctor comes on the line and he says, Mrs. Alpert, I'm sorry to tell you that the cells in your liver are... Um, the worst kind of cells and it's metastasized there. And if we don't take it out immediately, you'll be dead within a month. And I felt my heart freeze and close. And I felt my side, looked at the picture and I said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and it shocked the hell out of me. I mean, I never spoke to him. And a moment later, I, I realized I was meeting Shiva. I said, yeah, and that too. And we were just that much closer. We had just cut through, he and I, another level of the kind of goody-goody part of the bhakti trip, of the devotional trip. And we had moved into a place where we were recognizing each other 
across the universe and all of its chaos and all of its change and all of its horror and all of that. She's been through the second operation. Her liver's healing. She's at the moment quite free of stuff. Who knows how long. But what a growing experience for me. I mean, could I ask? I didn't ask for her to have this. But could I have asked for anything that would have forced my own growth and my confrontation of those attachments in myself any more than that? You've got to keep surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. Gandhi says, God demands nothing less than complete self-surrender as the price for the only real freedom that is worth having. And when a person thus loses herself, she immediately finds herself in the service of all that lives. It becomes her delight and recreation. She is a new person, never wary of spending herself in the service of God's creation. There's a statement in Buddhism, if you realize the voidness, compassion will arise within your heart. Now you can understand the statement of Saraha. He who clings to the void and neglects compassion does not reach the highest stage. But he who practices only compassion does not gain release from the toils of existence. He, however, who is strong in practice of both remains neither in samsara nor nirvana. Neither stay, you're not stuck in the form nor the formless. You're not standing anywhere. And the compassion is coming out of the emptiness, not out of do-gooding. It's coming out of a deeper place. It is the spontaneous, compassionate heart of the universe that's just speaking through you. I want to tell you one more story before we take a break. A number of years back, um, A group of people under the banner of the World Health Organization um, succeeded in eradicating smallpox from the face of the earth. Now, if you haven't been to an eastern country, you probably haven't seen the ravages of smallpox, of pockmarked faces and blindness and so on. But it's a devastating disease, and for that we were always vaccinated when we were children, at least I was. Now you don't need to have a vaccination anymore, none of those little things, you know because there's no more of it in the whole world. It's, it's, the, it's the only human disease that has been completely eradicated from the face of the earth. And they got, you know, they had maps and jeeps and needles and they went around, you know, and they'd see there was a case here and they'd surround the case and they'd vaccinate everybody. And it was so exciting. And then there were just four cases left in Bangladesh and, you know, and they rush with speed boats and they do this. And they got so juiced doing this that when it was over, they all went into a depression. Because it's like war, you know? I mean, it's like war games. And so after that was over, they 
were looking around for, some of them were looking around for what else to do. And there was a particularly vivacious woman doctor from Switzerland named Nicole Grasset. And um, she had been a real spearhead in this thing. She's very a dynamo. And she was with Sir John Wilson, who is a blind man who leads the World Blindness Organization, one of them. And he said to her, Nicole, you've taken on smallpox. Why don't you take on blindness now? I mean, it... 80% of the people that are blind in the world, that 80% is preventable or curable. 80%. And most of it's in third world countries. So Larry Brilliant, who was, um, Larry's interesting. Some of you may know Larry. Larry used to be known as Dr. America when he was part of the hog farm, which I'm sure you know. And Larry then went to India and met uh, Neem Karoli Baba, my guru, through the energies of his wife, Girija, who brought him there. And my guru said to him when he met him, UNO doctor, which Larry heard as what his mother used to say to him, you are no doctor, because here he was a doctor with a hog farm. I mean, he wasn't making any money. What kind of a doctor was that? From her point of view, UNO doctor. But the, he kept saying, UNO doctor, UNO doctor. And finally, it dawned on Larry that what he was saying was UNO, United Nations Organization doctor. So he sent Larry to become a UNO doctor because there was a United Nations project for smallpox in Delhi, which was about an eight-hour bus trip. See, the guru's got no teeth. UNO doctor, UNO doctor, UNO doctor. <laughs> Larry went down and he walked in. He's a hippie with long hair and the UN United Nations takes one look and they say, thank you very much. We'll keep you on a list. And he goes back and he gets back to the temple eight hours up on the bus with no springs and he, UNO doctor, go. So goes back to Delhi. They say, we don't want you. He comes back, UNO doctor, go. And he's like back and forth like a ping pong ball. Finally, he says to them in Delhi, have you got any job at all? Forget being a doctor. I just got to get this guy off my back. <laughs> so they say, well, you, we can make you an administrative something or other assistant. Okay. So he becomes part of the team under Nicole. And he does that. And then he's over with that. And he starts to teach at University of Michigan in public health. And he's now straight. And, and uh, he's gone through a lot of changes. So when he goes, he decides to put together a foundation to help Nicole get rid of blindness out of the world. And he draws from all his old friends. And he brings us all together, a group of us, at a retreat in Michigan where we all get snowed in. And the first meeting, you wouldn't believe. There's a man there who's part of his connection with World Health Organization who comes because he hears there's an organization starting named SEVA, which means Society for Epidemiological Voluntary Assistance. And he has come in a vest and a suit with a dispatch case from Washington. Sitting next to him, he suddenly looks, and there is a man sitting there with a beanie with a propeller on the top of his head. <laughs> his name is Wavy Gravy. And on around the table, it was a, a mix that you would find hard to believe. I mean, there were, nobody could figure out what they were doing with anybody else. And it took us three days before we realized that we all got tremendous delight out of serving and that it cut through all the stuff, all the stuff. I mean, Wavy's delight was working as a clown for kids with leukemia and, and uh, in the wards of the hospitals. 
and doing a tremendous amount of service. And each person had another part to play. To share with you what the board is like, I mean, because the board meetings are like group encounters. They're really horrendous, I'll tell you. It's really knock down, drag out. Because we, there are the means people and the ends people. The ends people say, we've got to get rid of blindness. And the means people say, but it matters how we do it. And the ends people say, it doesn't matter how, just get rid of it. The 60s New Ages say, but it's how you do it. And we go through that all the time. But let me give you an example of one of the members of our board, Michael. Michael, I first met in Boston. This is almost a commentary on the 60s, 70s, and 80s in one person. Michael, um, watch this one. Michael was a young lawyer in Boston who was really not getting off on doing law. He was in a very bad automobile accident. I was called to his bedside. His mother was there. We met. We had a nice talk with him. He was in casts and all kinds of stuff. And he decided he didn't really want to do law, and this accident had awakened him, and he wanted to do something else. And for his recuperation, he decided to go to India. And he went to India, and he went to the temple where my guru was, and he met Maharaji, and he fell in love, as we did, as I did. And he stayed there. I mean, but he stayed there. I mean, I'd stay for six months or something like that and then leave. He stayed year after year after year, and he ended up, washing the pots in the kitchen. I mean, which is great for the Indians to let a Westerner do that. I mean, that's really a, treating him as a pure being. And he would cook and he would wash pots and he never came out to have darshan. He always stayed back there. And he was such a humble guy. And I kind of felt maybe there was a little brain damage. I wasn't sure, but I mean, because I was a Westerner and you know, achievers, he was a lawyer. And what's this lawyer doing washing pots in the back of the temple? And, you know, he's just looking vacantly like he's washing pots all the time, and he's just very sweet. And I thought, well, you know, nice, Michael, hello, you know. <laughs> then my guru leaves his body. He drops his body. And Michael, you'd think at that point he'd come home and settle down. <laughs> but no, he just continues washing pots. And he's washing pots for all the people in the temple now. And I'm thinking, well, this, Michael, I mean, this is too far. Poor Michael, that's another one of those people that lost it through the 60s, you know. Very nice, very sweet thing to do, but finally, he'd, each year he'd get his visa extended, and one year the Indian government said, enough, nay, and they threw him out of India. So he came back to the States, and he was, what to do now? He was very confused. He came across an ad that said that it, what was needed was a public defender for the Eskimos in Barrow, Alaska. <laughs> so he went to Barrow, Alaska. And he started to be a public defender for the Eskimos. Well, that brought him into intimate relationship with the Eskimos. So he started to learn the Eskimo dances. And he got as Eskimo as he had been Hindu. I mean, in the Hindu community, he knew all the herbal medicines. He helped heal people. He was very loving and caring for all the devotees. They all loved him immensely. Now in the Eskimo land, he was loving. He went fishing with them. Now here's this ex-vegetarian out wailing and... <clears throat> defending the Eskimos against the oil companies and doing all that stuff. Just to complete the story, let me tell you that two years ago, at the age of 36, Michael was appointed by the governor of Alaska as a superior court judge. He is now a superior court judge. That's pretty far out. Right? Okay. Okay, so 
We decided to start with Nepal because it's a very poor country and it's small. And we figured we'll use Nepal as a model and to see if we could help Nepal become self-sufficient in eye care and get rid of the backlog of blindness. It turns out from a survey we did that uh, well over 90% of the blindness is due to cataract, which is due to ultraviolet light, and is curable by an operation that in the mobile eye hospitals takes 10 minutes and costs $15. Now, when you think about somebody that is blind in a third world country, it's not seeing eye dog land. It's not braille and all that stuff. The average life expectancy of somebody that goes blind in a third world country where survival is so, everybody's so close to the edge, is three and a half years. And when you go blind, you're out of the labor force and that's it. And if you do live on, can you imagine what it's like to live on in a rocky terrain like Nepal where you have to have another person taking care of you all the time or you're gonna fall off. Living there blind, imagine that when you could be cured by an operation that takes 10 minutes. Imagine if you knew that, what it would feel like to be blind. There are 300,000 of those in Nepal at the moment. I mean, you can understand that Nepal has 1 16th of our population and in Nepal, there are 15 ophthalmologists, and in the United States, there are 16,000 ophthalmologists. Okay. So you can hear what the situation is. So we just figured, well, we'll pour in money and bring in expatriate ophthalmologists and train the Nepalese, and it'll all be, well, it's a big deal. I mean, I didn't realize this isn't just like, oh, yeah, we'll do that. You know, I mean, it's bureaucracies and building hospitals and flying this in and that in and equipment. I mean, just the, the sutures to sew up the eye. Like in the United States, in a hospital, they use a suture this long to take about two stitches, then they cut it and throw the rest away. So we now collect sutures in hospitals and we re-sterilize them and they used for like 50 eyes, one suture that we threw away in the States. So we started to learn how to play this game. A few years ago, and we've been, our money has come from contributions and from benefits by such wonderful beings as the Grateful Dead. And we, can you imagine, we receive money from the Grateful Dead and at the same moment we are eligible for funds from the United Way. Isn't that a great blending of things? That's really extraordinary. That's why I like SAVA because it's such an interface of the games. It's not an us-them thing at all. It's all us. A few years ago, Larry said, you know, what I think we need is an endowment because uh, we, we're, so much of a percentage of the money we raise is going for overhead. And you know, charities, you always look at what percentage goes for keeping the staff and everybody going, and it starts to creep up with an organization, with insurance and all that stuff. It's, it just creeps, you know. So Larry said he'd take on getting an endowment, and he tried with granting agencies, and nobody came through. So he thought he had an idea and he decided to start a business. And he started a thing called NETI, which is a, a business, a corporation. It is now two years later, NETI has endowed SAVA for $2 million so that every penny of overhead and fundraising is covered by the endowment so that every penny people give now to SAVA is 100% goes directly to the service. That's impressive, right? The, but wait, there's, there's more cute twists to it. 
The business he started was a computer software business. The particular compute, which is now on the Vancouver Exchange, the computer software business he started was computer conferencing, which allows people on computers to run businesses and solve problems and discuss things and from great distances and do it in, not in real time, but in your own time. Seva is a beta test site for the company so that we run the corporation, Seva is run completely on computers. I sit, if you don't think an old dog can learn new tricks, I sit in my bedroom as chairman of the board in my computer at one in the morning talking to Mike Jeffrey in Barrow and Ned Willard in Switzerland and Wavy and Jaw out here in Berkeley and Steve Jones down in CDC. And we all make decisions and take votes and we do all this on computers. That's like real new age. Well, um, what we found out was that, uh, and one of our board members is Dr. Venkateswamy, who's this very far out Indian doctor who, he's won the Padma Shri Award, which is like the Nobel Prize in India for working with blindness. He's got big hospitals and does thousands and thousands of cases. And he's, he does surgery himself and he's got arthritic hands. They're both like this, totally arthritic. And he does eye surgery. And he is an incredibly dedicated, beautiful being. One, one mind only, get rid of blindness, get rid of blindness, get rid of blindness. And so we support him and support Nepal. Then we found out that the money that we could raise couldn't be absorbed just into those things and we wanted to spread the game a little. So we took on other projects, a little bit like helping with primary care among in South Dakota with the American Indians, with women of all red nations. <clears throat> we took on... Um, reforestation projects in Lesotho, Africa, in Costa Rica, in South Dakota, on the Indian Reservation, and we're taking on one in Nepal. We took on work with the Guatemalan refugees on the, in, the Mex, in Mexico on the border camps because the only way they can earn their living is through weaving crafts, and so we provide materials for them and help them sell their products. We've just been spreading out. I mean, the fun of doing this game, I can't tell you what... what what delight it is to play in this ballpark. I mean, if, it's, if it means putting on a tie and jacket and being straight, so what? It's a delight to play. The newest game we're playing now is we realize that a lot of other people have in their hearts the desire to serve or they're serving already, but they're burning out because they're caught in the way they serve and they just get freaked because they haven't learned the two basic rules the Bhagavad Gita teaches that you don't be identified with being the actor. In other words, the service is just happening. Don't get caught in, I'm serving. And don't be attached to the fruits of the action. You do what you can and what happens, happens. Do it as well as you can. If it is not God's will that it be that way, let it go. You do it as well as you can. If you're attached to the fruits, you're gonna burn out. There's no doubt about it. These are two very profound rules and they are Hard work for any server, and you are, most of you are servers in one way or another, and you know of what I'm speaking. How hard it is not to get caught in thinking you're doing it, and how hard not to get caught in being attached to the fruits of it. And you think, if I'm not attached to the fruits and I don't think I'm doing it, why do I do it? <laughs> well, try, and you'll see. <laughs> so what we've decided we would like to do now is set up local chapters around the country, like a satsang or a sangha or a fellowship of service, where people maybe who are already serving, 
can come to a place where they can help get refurbished about the way they're serving, help other, other people help them waken out of the way they got caught, because there is a lot of burnout among professional servers. Or maybe the groups will take on local projects, or maybe they'll help Oxfam, or maybe they'll help Savo, or maybe they'll take on an international project, or maybe they'll just sit and talk, or maybe they'll go on retreats. Who knows? It's up to them. We just want to support such groups starting. So <clears throat> there are T-shirts that have the emblem of, this is the eyes of Buddha on the Swayambhu Temple in Kathmandu, Nepal. And that's the logo of the Seva Foundation. Seva is a Sanskrit word which means service. And there is another Sanskrit word called Dharma. And my friend KK now has taught me that the difference between Dharma and Seva is Dharma is what you do because of who you are in life. I mean, it is my dharma to take care of my father. When I go beyond that to do something more than that, that's seva. Seva is the beyond, but you would only do the beyond if you understood something more than most people know. And that's why seva only comes with grace. This is very far out. It's the grace of appreciating the true way in which you are both a separate entity and you are not a separate entity. Because seva, seva, doing service, demands that you absorb not only that paradox, the paradox that you are both one and you are the many, but a whole other set of paradoxes. Take, for example, the paradox about suffering. I mean, you go high enough and you look and suffering is perfect. It's part of the laws of things. I work with dying people and I watch how somebody with an ego the size of a cinder block, I mean thick, and they're, and they're full of anger and resistance and tightness and then they suffer and they suffer and they suffer. And then I watch the light come into them and I watch their opening through this pain and I think, oh my God, is, could that be? Could this beautiful saint have come out of that heavy ego? And I think I would never lay that suffering on that person, but by God, that suffering is sure awakening them. And from where I'm standing, I can see that suffering is the stuff that burns through to purity. You don't lay it on people, but when it's there, you acknowledge at one level of your being, which is up here in your third eye, that it is just as it should be. And at your heart level, which is the human part of you, the emotional part of you, suffering stinks. And that's a paradox. It's part of the stretching to be both divine and human. In divinity, suffering is part of the plan. In humanity, it hurts like hell, and you do what you can to alleviate it. And it's far out to work to alleviate suffering at the same moment knowing suffering's perfect. And you alleviate it for somebody who says, alleviate it for me. If somebody's hungry, they need food. And as Maharaji said to, to us, food, God comes to the poor, the hungry in the form of food. Once they have food, then they can concern themselves with these other issues. But you have to survive in the incarnation to do the work of the incarnation. And these are all parts of the process. So you work to end suffering at the same moment. It's perfect. You are formless and yet you are in form. You are behind duality and yet you are in duality. These are all the paradoxes you are stretching to absorb into your each act. That's what the yoga of service allows you to do or gives you the opportunity to work on. 
So you end up understanding that you serve in order to work on yourself and you work on yourself in order to be a better instrument of service. And you can feel the circle work. You can just feel that circle work. So to, to complete my sequence, I go from trying to get high to trying to be human. I'm trying to get rid of trying along the way to just getting to the point where there is divinity and humanity and I'm doing what I'm doing and I find myself with my father because that's in the way of things and I find myself because I knew Larry in India and now then I was on the board and then when they said, who wants to be chairman this year? I found myself raising my hand. I looked at my hand. I couldn't believe I had raised it. <laughs> I mean, I who was dancing so light and hated institutions, suddenly playing with institutions. See, just like the rabbi, who knew, who knew, who knew where you were gonna end up today, right? But all I can tell you is it feels right. And the only, what each of us must do, since for here, us to hear our dharma and the route through to getting into the harmony of things where we are so appreciative of it all that then the, the seva comes out of us, each of us has a unique route through. It's built into the system and you just have to listen and you end up listening much more because you can't imitate anybody else's trip. It doesn't work. You can't even imitate your trip of last week. And sometimes you try a new one and then you realize a few moments later that wasn't it and you've got to admit quickly you fell out, you blew it. Get up, brush yourself off, look a little sheepish and get on with it. Right. Each of us has a unique part to play. You can't get happy if you deny suffering in the universe. I'll tell you a simple law, because the juice you have to put into denying it cuts off the full flow. If you, as long as you've got to turn something off, there's a cost. And the question is, can you look at suffering full in the face, open your heart to it, and still exist and be joyful? That's the art form. And that takes that embracing paradox. I've told this story before, but it happened so close I can't resist. I was on the beach over here on Sausalie, uh, in Stinson Beach at the, one of the nude beaches several years back. You don't have to visualize this if you don't want to. I had, <laughs> I had been playing in the clay banks. We were all covered with clay. I had a Frisbee. We were throwing the Frisbee. I was about to throw the Frisbee running naked in the sunshine with clay and all that stuff. Water sparkling in the distance, all that, you know, my MG up on the hill. I mean, I was perfect. I was, you know, I, it was essence. And as I'm about to throw the Frisbee, the thought goes through my mind, the memory of the inscription over the, over Gandhi's tomb, which says, think of the poorest person you've ever known and ask whether your next act will be of any use. I mean, that could bring you down. Do you throw the Frisbee or don't you? Okay. Okay. I threw the Frisbee and I continue to throw the Frisbee because I think my unique Dharma is the balance of all this. It's the joy, it's the appreciation of the incredible bounty of the world I've been handed, this kind of royal life I've got at the same moment doing what I do to relieve suffering without being drowned in the immensity of the suffering. As Gandhi said, what you do may seem insignificant, but it's very important that you do it. 
And that's uh, true about political action. It's true about social action. It's true about all of it. It's true about all of it. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.